0: It's the dog days of summer, but the good news is college football is just around the corner. This is Rick Jones. Welcome you back to From the Bridge. It has been a most interesting month in college football. I watched all of the conference media days and could feel the excitement from each of the coaches and players and those that cover college football. But then we had the bombshell speculation that both Oklahoma and Texas wanted to leave the Big 12 and join the SEC. And that has led to a lot of interesting downstream issues, like would the Big 12 start poaching other schools, or would they merge with the Pac-12, or what would the new media landscape look like? All fun. But we'd all better remember the fans. You remember those people, don't you? They're the ones who had to mostly stay home last year. You know, those folks who pay for all the tickets and watch all the games on TV and buy those polo shirts with the school logo on them and make donations to put their name on somebody's office door in the athletic compound. Yep, those fans. What will those fans be expecting this fall? We're going to talk to Kyle Nelson today, the co-founder of, CMO, and partner of MVP Index about the things he and others are doing to enhance the enjoyment of live events for fans. We'll also climb back up on the soapbox to give you my opinion about the college sports realignment and take you to another great place to eat this football season on the Road with Rick. It appears that fans will be back in force at college football games this fall. So what's their expectations? Well, number one, they expect a clean, safe, and disinfected environment because, unfortunately, the Delta variant of COVID-19 is not seemingly able to go away. Number two, because of that, we're going to have things like digital ticketing, and touchless payments at concession stands, and cleaning crews that are permanently set up in each restroom. Number three, many stadiums are moving from a clear bag policy to no bags at all. This means things like tampons and other feminine products had better be available, like our friend Lizzie Levine discussed earlier this season on From the Bridge. Well, how about those personal antiseptic wipes to use and dispose of, and maybe snacks for small children, since we may no longer be able to bring those into the stadium. But with all this technology and sanitation, they still expect to be entertained, really entertained. They expect you to have done something during the past year and a half to improve their experience in every team, stadium, and arena Better heed this. I've been watching the Olympics. TV ratings are way down this year for live sporting events. It seems that people have found other things to do during the pandemic and are not going back to what they did before. We all understand that young people especially are consuming sporting events differently with smaller bursts of viewing and highlights winning over against long-format content. Gamification, and may I dare say betting on college games, cannot get here soon enough. And not just because schools need the income. Fans want to bet on games. In fact, fans are betting on games. And if we don't let them, they're going to migrate to sports that will allow them to bet. So there are lots of changes and enhancements on the way. For those in the industry, buckle your seatbelt. This seems to be the perfect time to get back up on my soapbox. I understand the need for revenue growth for schools, and that is driving this new round of conference realignments. But once again, are we thinking of the fans? It's doubtful. It already appears that that old bugaboo of hurt feelings is going to rule the day. The jilted lover saying, I'm going to take my ball and go home and not play you anymore. Will fans love traditional rivalries? Will these change? In a larger SEC, will the non-conference rivalry games like Georgia Tech versus Georgia and Florida State versus Florida and in our state, Clemson versus South Carolina, will they go away? They better not. Will the great bedlam series between Oklahoma and Oklahoma State go away? We used to love the annual Nebraska versus Oklahoma game, and its demise has hurt college football. Mizzou needs to play Kansas. Maryland needs to reinstate those classic Terps versus Tar Heels and Terps versus Blue Devils basketball games. Why? Because that's what fans want to see. To my commissioner friends, pay attention. People like to eat what they want to eat and not what you want to feed them. To paraphrase the political consultant James Carville, It's the fan, stupid. Let's please not be stupid. Because as I often say, I can't coach stupid. My guest angler is anything but stupid. Kyle Nelson is one of the best, brightest, and innovative voices in the world of fan experiences. His former agency, MVP Index, used data and software in ways to better engage with fans. And now at his new shop, Hat Trick, he has clients and partners that are finding innovative ways to keep fans engaged long before and long after the games. Let's welcome my pal, Kyle Nelson, to the bridge. Hey Kyle, welcome. We're glad you're on the show today.
1: Hey, Rick. I can't tell you how much I've looked forward to this.
0: It's going to be awesome. a lot. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um I always every guest we always start with, you know, what's your background? Where are you from? I know you went to TCU, but uh, were you raised in Texas?
1: Yeah, you know, I've I never left Texas, so um, born and raised outside of Houston, and uh, migrated to Central Texas. Uh, had a little stint um, trying to get into A&M, and decided it was a little big for me, and uh, ended up at TCU. Uh, my mom actually went to TCU, so that that drove me to TCU. But uh, nope, haven't left Texas, and and one of those crazy. Tech entrepreneurs that didn't head uh, head west.
0: I one of my favorite songs is the Lyle Lovett song with his large band called. That's right. You're not from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and I, ju- I just love that song, but you are from Texas. Uh, and I, I am from I, Texas. Yeah.
1: That's right. And, and we're welcoming a lot of other folks that want to come to
0: Texas. Yes, a say. lot of people. Well, that's the other part of that song. It says, that's right. You're not from Texas, but Texas wants you anyway. <laughs> and and I, I just love that. The, um, and I love the the community around TCU. I think Fort Worth is it, it may be my favorite city in the entire state of Texas. It's um yeah, everybody talks about Dallas, but hell, all the money's in Fort Worth. Uh <laughs> <laughs> like all the real money <laughs>
1: that's right. is in that's,
0: Fort Worth.
1: That's right. Uh Fort Worth is awesome. Uh I you know, if I didn't start my career in Dallas, I'd probably be in Fort Worth. Um it's It's gorgeous over there and the experience at TCU was phenomenal and we of course it's you know a thirty forty five minute drive from where we are. So we're over there quite a bit and uh, looking forward to everything opening up so we can experience some TCU football games.
0: Yeah, you know it's interesting. People don't realize the rivalry between Dallas and Fort Worth and the historic rivalry. You know John Kennedy in 63 flew to Fort Worth and and spent the night. And and was at a breakfast in Fort Worth, um, and it's a it's a great story. They p- presented him with a cowboy hat. Kennedy never wore hats, and he didn't put it on. And a lot of people were offended that he didn't didn't put the hat on. But then he got back on Air Force One and flew out of the little Fort Worth airport to Dallas Love Field, and we know what happened then. Um, with his assassination. So it's, uh, you know, it, was, it, would, it would have been demeaning for the president to have driven from Fort Worth to Dallas. You had, had, had to fly in. That was part of the politics of the year and all that. Now, you, you get out of school, were you always interested in high tech?
1: Yeah, you know what? I actually interned, well, before I interned in tech, I actually worked at that hotel. Rick, uh where Kennedy stayed, obviously, way after him. Um but uh yeah, always interested in tech. Uh, I actually had a double major that I studied for, which was economics and psychology, didn't pursue either, wasn't a real tech uh gearhead per se, uh, but had an internship for a small uh software company in Dallas, Texas. And I ended up working there for about three years. And this is when I, I don't know if you remember this. This is when CompuSA software house started. Yep. Where all of a sudden people were going in with shopping carts into a computer store and loading up a shopping cart with you know, computers and software and mice and keyboards uh, like they were at a, a Sam's Club or a grocery store. Um, and a whole phenomenon took over. And this is when Windows was launching, and uh, Harvard Graphics—that'll date me. Um, and listen, uh, I'll date
0: myself. My first computer was was Wang. You remember oh, yeah, Wang, and you had, you had the, the 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 things you slid into the computer, the programming thing. I mean,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, um, so mine was a Trash eighty. That's when the radio <laughs> yeah, track was exactly like, exactly T R S eighty. Uh, yeah, so uh, actually got. Uh, kind of a bug, and um, uh, grew in the industry as Software House and CompUSA grew, and uh, worked for a company called Arts and Letters. Uh, competed with Harvard Graphics and Adobe Illustrator, Corel Draw, etc. And um, uh, that was a phenomenal experience. And I, I went from there to um, actually launching a consulting practice where. I helped other companies break into that industry. So when Best Buy and Bismarck and Staples were all getting into the computer game as well, I was helping uh, smaller brands navigate into, you know, how do I put software in a box? What's a UPC code? Um, how do we, uh, you know, break into an Ingram or uh, Tech Data or a Maricel? So, uh, that's that's where I started my career.
0: Well, if you think about it, your your degree, your combination degree, economics and psychology, were perfect for this. You, you're dealing with a lot of you know tech people that in many cases didn't understand economic vitality. That you actually had to make something that would make money, and secondly, in many cases, they didn't really understand how the consumer was going to use it. And you know, I think your background uniquely at that intersection of tech was just perfect.
1: Uh, well, thank you. I think that I, I learned a little bit from uh, Errol Jacobson, who was the founder of Software Warehouse, Cy Marin, who's one of his uh, consultants uh, who has since passed away, uh, but learned that software was no different than cereal boxes if you uh, and, and magazines. If you went into a grocery store and you looked at where boxes were positioned, and which ones were getting purchased? You notice that the bigger boxes that seemed to weigh more are magazines that had a huge image on it with very few words, but a value prop uh, was sitting right there in front of you. That's what was selling. So <clears throat> we kind of learned the same thing: where do we position the boxes? Where do we we stack them? And and then what were the economics? Uh, you know, what were the margins involved with uh, uh, you know? the higher you increase that margin, the higher up on the shelf you got, uh, in, in getting in caps so that, uh, you know, uh, you were outselling your, your competition. So it was a phenomenal experience and, and great timing. And then I jumped out of that, um, and into the internet space when dot coms were, were, were launching. So in 97, 98, I was one of the founding members of jobs.com and, uh, Lucky enough to have Mel Carzine and Fred Reynolds over at uh, you know CBS Viacom to uh, be be one of their investments. Um, we ultimately raised about a hundred million uh behind jobs.com and, and one of the top three job boards uh, that were one of the you know replacements for the the jobs you know classified section, which was 70-80% of the newspaper's revenue. We came in with the new kid on the block and and uh, took over that model and disrupted it. Um, now you could probably launch jobs.com for ten ten thousand dollars, maybe a hundred bucks on on AWS. Um, so great experience. You know, it's interesting. I I, I made it
0: in a in a previous um, episode. I talked about a menu at a restaurant being like a foam. And then I remembered hell half the people listening to me don't know what a phone book is. Uh, <laughs> That's right. That's right. You, know, you know, and what's fascinating now is the speed of the microprocessor and that the data, <clears throat> the the ability to transfer data, store data, gather data, utilize data, the whole growth of apps, the whole growth of everything being in the palm of your hand with your smartphone has created all kinds of unique opportunities um, these days. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, I think, you know, your point about data is um, dead on. Um, We are uh, definitely in a data race. Uh, There's lots and lots of data out there, but making sense of the data is really where we're kind of stymied. Um, So uh, what's unique, and you and I have talked about this, is – you know, if, if I go talk to an NFL uh, team, any NFL team, their um, their their data of who their season ticket buyer is a forty-six year old white male. and that's that's not the case, especially in several other markets. Uh, but that's that's who's buying the tickets, not who's going to the game. Um, so the fact is, yes, we've got all of these resources around data. But we haven't triangulated the data to make sense of who's really showing up, who's in the stadium, what are they, what is the customer journey from parking lot to what gate do they go in to where are they sitting. Um, and then uh, a good friend of mine from the Atlanta Falcons, Dan Gad, said to me one day, he said, I know a lot about the guys in my stadium. I don't know what they're doing outside my stadium. I don't know how I can get them to consume more of my brand. So are they going to microbreweries? What part of town are they living in? What's their daily journey? And then how do I build my brand and, and create content for them outside my stadium? And I think that's what's really key is uh, these properties are now becoming media entities. How do I create media for my fan outside of my venue? So data is going to be really, really essential in doing that, um, but getting smarter about Triangulating this data and, and pulling it together is going to be key.
0: Well, you're, you're now at MVP Index, you know, co-founder of that. Tell, tell everybody out there listening what you guys actually do.
1: Well, uh, clearly, not, I I left MVP uh, several years ago, but uh, when uh, Sean and I, uh, and, and by the way, Sean is Sean Spieth. When Sean and I started the company, it was right when his son was joining PGA Tour. And we, I had just—that would be Jordan a, Spieth for all you people
0: out there listening. <laughs> just a, you know, just a guy that's won a few majors, so uh, that guy.
1: I think he's got a future on the PGA Tour for sure. Um, but but at the time, he um, was uh, just trying to qualify on the PGA Tour, and um, Sean and I um, had had been friends for a long time. I just sold a social media agency. And uh, Sean asked me. He said, you know, "Why don't we join forces and figure out if there's something we can do together that leverages my my knowledge of of tech and of social and his behind the ropes uh, opportunity that was in front of us?" And we quickly realized, and, and I won't mention the names of the agencies, but very big agencies that Jordan was talking to. Uh, when the heads of these agencies were asked, what do you do to build a millennial brand in this new social era? And they go, well, we help them get a Facebook page and we'll build them a website. That wasn't the answer. No, that was not
0: the answer. And it's interesting in a world where you realize you're going to build your personal brand and there has to be architecture to do that, how the marketplace was so lacking in the ability to actually do that.
1: Right. And so when we started MVP, you know, that was at a time where if you looked at Tiger Woods on the PGA Tour, his social footprint, he had 10 times more followers than the average PGA Tour player. And yet he never posted anything. He didn't engage at all. But the metric in the industry was followers. So how many, you know, this is when, you know, social, it was all a race to get as many followers as you could get. And yet, no one understood the algorithms uh, at Facebook, etc., which were built around engagement. And you know, a like was okay, but it, it really wasn't a a huge economic uh, you know boost to have more likes than somebody else. Uh, it was about driving that, the the shares and the comments and and uh, driving engagement in a, in a loyal fan base. And so, the opportunity was there for these millennials. To take advantage of it, um, but there were really no one at the time focused on helping that that millennial brand drive engagement, build a fan base, execute and activate for sponsorships. So, uh, Sean and I had lots and lots of help from Jade who who's Jordan's agent, to others in in the market that educated us on how this unique world of sports and entertainment works. The language is completely different than what we were used to. Sean coming from the, the mobile space and telco space, me coming from .com and social, just a completely different landscape. Um, and what we set out to do as we talk about data was to uh, essentially take everything that was activating. So 80 sports, let's just look at that. Every athlete in 80 sports, not just the top performing athletes, not just the starting lineup, but every single athlete, because what we noticed is you didn't have to be the best athlete uh, to be the best on social. And so you you had to look at 400 plus PGA tour players And then come back to that and say, here's what really mattered. Here's who can move the needle for a natty light, uh, or here's who can move the needle for an Under Armour from a social perspective. Um, And so uh, net net, um, we were building Nielsen for social media um, and then trying to put a currency around engagement.
0: You know, with the new NIL rules in college athletics, we're going to really see the validity of your social handle not necessarily having anything to do with your performance on the field, um, but it's how well you engage with your fans. I've already seen that there are twin girls that play basketball at Fresno State that have like 3 million followers already. I mean, they're both cute and they're fun and they're expressive, but they got huge
1: following. And, and they didn't get that following because of, you know, they got it because they're really good on engaging fans on social. Yeah. And they had a privilege of what their position is um, and how good of an athlete they are as well. So,
0: And now they have to yep. be able to do it. Well, let's talk about what you're doing now. I know you're working with a number of... Uh, Clients and partners in ways that better engage with fans, you know, let's talk a little bit about digital seats and then let's talk a little bit about
1: earbuds. Sure, Rick. Uh, You know, one of the things that I learned when we were at MVP index was the sports and entertainment industry is purely built on relationships. Right. And so um, when, you know, Sean and I started MVP, we spent a lot of time looking at each other saying, okay, who do we call? And how do we get in the door? And Sean had great access, but um, you still needed to understand the language. And you these are people that we needed to spend years with to, to build a, a, a partnership with. And so with Hattrick, uh, which I co-founded with Grady Raskin, Grady, uh, farmer, had a sponsorship at uh, the Texas Rangers, the Dallas Stars, went on to be the president of the uh, XFL Renegades. And then, you know, COVID, COVID kind of kiboshed uh, that a little bit. Grady and I built an organization with a number of people that held those same positions as, as Grady team presidents, CMOs, heads of sponsorship, and then helping. Uh, You mentioned digital seat platforms that were huge innovations to drive data, which we've talked about, to drive fan engagement and sponsorship activation, uh, help a digital seat and others navigate through this world. And it's not about uh, going in and selling a digital seat to a property or, or a venue it's more of helping these um, innovators and entrepreneurs understand and get feedback directly from the decision makers so they can build a better platform so they understand how to build the pricing models and how to you know, navigate through this world. So we're, we're doing that around six or seven key brands um, and uh, Digital Seat, C- Earbuds, which you mentioned, uh, a, a platform called HotMic, which is a virtual watch party. Um, we we're actually also helping a, a very well-known brand, Chuck E. Cheese, which I think everyone knows, which is the number one brand around birthdays. They're launching a, a new media network, and we're helping. Uh, navigate through that as well and and bring in platforms as well as sponsors into the mix. Um, what I love about Digital
0: yeah. Seats is the ability to scan a barcode and continue to have a relationship with the brand long after you scan the barcode. <laughs> um, talk a little bit about that and the process of Digital Seats and some of the things that you've been able to help them do.
1: Yeah, Rick, um, Cameron and Matt, who, who started Digital Seats really created something brilliant so to your point you scan a barcode and much like an app it opens up a progressive web page that acts and feels like an app it's got currently i think they have 26 or 27 different modules everything from player rosters to stadium map to real-time game stops stats but also you've got you know AR and VR experiences. You have enter to win. Um, So you you can even put in the the stadium program. So uh, what's brilliant about it is, and and let's just be honest, you're not going to download every stadium or every team's app that you're going to go and visit. Um, You might, if you're a, let's say a Cowboys fan, but uh, if you're a visitor to uh, a Cowboys game, uh, Giants, I, I, I really think a Giants fan is going to struggle to download a Dallas Cowboys app. You think? And, <laughs> right? <laughs> but there's so much that's been invested in the app that there's you know the need to support the app. But the reality is it doesn't give you 360-degree coverage of the fan, both your fan and the visiting fan. It also probably isn't going to hit the 12-year-old that's coming to the game. So with Digital Seat, they have a QR code on every single seat. Each QR code is completely different. When you bring up your phone and you bring up your camera, I don't think I need to train anyone on how QR codes work uh, thanks uh, in in part to COVID. uh, But when I scan that, all of a sudden I'm getting all of the information that would be available in an app, but I didn't have to download anything. And so that can be activated in stadium. Um, It can be activated out in the parking lot. if, If there's QR codes out there and I can, I can engage with that team better yet. The team can capture data. The team can activate better for their sponsors and they can activate with everyone as well as mobile ordering so, you know, you can do touchless and 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 uh, and not worry or contactless uh, and not worry about, uh, you know, pulling out your credit card and you, no need for cash. So all of the capabilities are there. It's just got better coverage. I love
0: that. It it really makes it a extremely convenient for fans and be extremely engaging for fans. And that's good for sponsors and for properties alike. Now I'm, I'm intrigued by earbuds. Tell everybody what that's all about. Um, because I'm, I'm fascinated by that product.
1: Yeah, it's brilliant. So Jason Fox, um, who is a former NFL player, um, describes the story of he's, he's in a football game uh, pre-game and during the warm-up, he sees Cam Newton with his—I guess they were Beats headphones on, you know—going through his warm-up. And Jason said, "I wonder what he's listening to." And the same question millions of people asked this when Michael Phelps—remember when he yeah, had was sitting, yeah, sitting on, exactly?
0: Hoodie right? he at the Olympics, he's
1: got music going. Yep, yep. Right, and and everyone was tweeting, "What is he listening to?" What's brilliant about earbuds is they've done partnerships with, you know, uh, uh, one of the key players, Spotify, uh, and others to where you continue to use your Pandora or Spotify subscription. But you also can use earbuds that works on top of it to allow you to listen to, let's say, Patrick Mahomes, where you can listen to what he's listened to while he's working out or pregame. Okay, and so it takes the level of uh, fan base to a whole nother level. Where yeah, I can follow you on Twitter and Facebook and and engage with you, but now I can listen to what you're listening to right before you go into the game. It's huge. So it's it's a music social media platform that allows you to comment and engage with that artist and other fans and then share that music list as well. So it's great for music discovery. Um, They have great activations for sponsorships. Um, You can buy off of the platform. You can um, engage with other brands on the platform that are sponsoring these athletes or celebrities. Um, So it's it's a very unique platform.
0: I know you've done a lot of work and are continuing to do a lot of work in eSports, and it is just in this year. I mean, it's always was coming, but it seems like it's been a tidal wave this year of the ability to get, you know, competitive teams uh, around the world, um, you know, playing a variety of games and doing a variety of things. Talk about some of the things y'all are doing there.
1: Yeah, you know, probably the, the most exciting, and I, I've got to be careful how much I talk about this as it's launching, but Sean, Spieth, and I are are joining forces again, and um, really um, building an esports platform for it's, it's really a venue inside of other venues um, where lots of these venues are where lots of families congregate and are members. So, um, and these esports venues that we're building. Um, are allowing youngsters to do competitive play, non-professional competitive play, but join teams. And it's really an effort, and and this is Sean's passion, to get kids out of their homes and in their rooms playing, you know, individually Call of Duty, and get them out of there and and competing to get on teams um, and build more community. Right. And so Sean's very, very passionate about that, as you can imagine. And um, we're, we're moving into the ability to help them find places, let's say their local country club, to join an esports team, which would be rare. But, um, um, you know, we're one thing to remember here is that the average 10, 12, 13 year old might not be that p- passionate about football or uh, golf or some other sports, but he's very, or she, are very passionate about eSports. Where can they go to join a team for that? Um, and it's very, very limited. So that's that's a key of what we're doing, and there's lots of data and, and other things that we're passionate about around that as well.
0: I think that's so key for society. You know, I've always said, I've always been a guy that recruited almost hundred percent of my staff that were either played a team sport, were in the marching band or were in a play or some sort of other team composite activity. And and you know, one issue with esports is that like you said, you're in the basement, you're alone, and and you lack some social skills. You lack the ability to interface with others. Um, and now you're combining that passion point of esports with the great things about teams. Which is being part of something bigger than yourself, and and I think that is an essential element for the future of esports, and candidly for the future of our society.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, I hear you. Um, it is maybe not a lack of communication skills; it's just a new way of communicating. That's fair. If you if you took away the cell phone of you know the average teenager. That'd be detrimental, but it wouldn't be as detrimental as taking away their Xbox and because they're communicating. Now, their buddies are on right now and th- and they're talking, which is great. They're actually talking instead of just texting. So it's just a new way for them to communicate, but they're they're not gonna go and turn on the TV. Uh, they don't watch TV. <laughs> um, I know the stats are different, but they're out and they're playing Xbox and um, And uh, they're communicating in a completely different way. We just want to get them out of the house and communicating with their friends from a team perspective and building some community there. So I think it's time for that to evolve. Um, And um, we we know we're going to get wide adoption for, for, for doing that. So we're excited.
0: Well, I know y'all are involved in a whole lot of different unique things. What's on the horizon for Hat Trick right now? What, do you, what are you also excited about?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, before, we, we we're helping uh, a, a well-known brand like Chuck E. Cheese uh, launch a media network. Very exciting for us. Um, we've got uh, folks that are uh, well-established uh, brands with, uh, within sports and entertainment that are coming to us as well, saying, you know, it just makes sense to to uh, partner with someone like hat to have a wider net and fractionalize our, our teams instead of, uh, you know, bringing on full-time staff. And I think COVID, uh, you know, proved that, that, that uh, A, you could have people based all over the place. B, you really needed to have people that had connections. Uh, The sad fact about COVID, I felt so sorry for uh, people that were starting their careers in sports and entertainment when COVID hit. Um, As you know, most of this industry, which is relationship-based, we were going to events like the Masters or All-Star Week uh, uh, and or an SPGA conference, or whatever it might be. With no travel, you can't build a relationship if you didn't already have one established over Zoom. It just wasn't going to happen. And so, um, for Hatrick, fortunately, that's helped us and it's helped us uh, bring on more clients and partners and expand our team out there so we're looking forward to uh you know continuing to do so and and hopefully partnering with folks like you rick and 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 with fish bait and and engagement and and folks like that well i'm you know consistently
0: beating this drum that says the future is about identifying your tribe whether you're a property an event or a brand you've got to identify your tribe you've got to communicate with your tribe you've got to engage with your tribe and ultimately you got to monetize your tribe and all these things y'all are doing are really facilitators to do all of those and that's just unbelievably exciting Hey, Kyle, I need to get you back at some point because y'all are doing so many things, but I thank you for sharing a lot of new thinking with us today from the bridge. Thank you, Rick.
1: Loved it and looking forward to collaborating further.
0: In honor of Kyle's visit today, let's take you to a great old school spot in Fort Worth, Texas. It's the Paris Coffee Shop on Magnolia Street. The owner for the past 55 years, Mike Smith, recently retired. His dad had run the place for decades before he took over. It's now under new ownership, but with the same staff, team, and menu. They have enormous cowboy-style breakfasts with chicken fried steak and milk gravy, eggs over easy with hash browns. They have wonderful lunches with meat and three specials terrific burgers and sandwiches, homemade onion rings. But you really come here for the pies. They have multiple pies each and every day. In fact, Mike Smith said he felt like he had baked over 500,000 pies over his career. They have fruit pies, cream pies, chocolate pies, and what Mike Smith says was his favorite, egg custard. I love their coconut cream pie the best. The best meal is just to come in and order four different slices of pie with a great cup of coffee. It's the Paris Coffee Shop, an old school wonder, kind of like me, on the road with Rick. Another great show is in the books. Thanks again to my guest, Kyle Nelson, for sharing some great new insights, and to you for listening. I hope to see you back here next week from the bridge.